This morning I'm concluding a series that I've been on for the last seven weeks. It's a series that we've known titled as I Need an Answer to Prayer. And today we're going to be talking specifically, specifically about the prayer for salvation. The prayer for salvation. Bow your heads with me if you would. Father, as we approach your throne of grace today, we thank you for the preparation that you have given us through this time of worship through a a moment of time where the Holy Spirit came upon an individual to speak to the hearts and lives of others that responded this morning. Lord, all of this is your hand at work. But Lord, you also said that you add a special anointing when the fresh bread of life is being broken and it's being distributed. And so Lord, I ask that you would elevate our appetite for your word today and that through it, Lord, that you would fill us as we would recognize you in everything that you do and say, and we ask this in Jesus' name, amen. There's a passage of Scripture that I would like you to turn to this morning. It's found in John chapter 14, verse 6, and it will become kind of the springboard verse to some of the things that I want to speak to you about this morning, and then between the second and third point, we're going to enter in and prepare our hearts for communion together, a wonderful time that we will have together as the family of God. John 14, 6, Jesus is speaking when he says, I am the way and the truth and the life. And then he adds this part on to what he was saying just to add the element of impact to the first part of the scripture when he said this, no one comes to the Father except through me. A very exclusive powerful statement that Jesus makes. I want to open with a burning question that's more serious than it will seem in the asking, and I will warn you that it has an edge to it. It is the question that divides all peoples everywhere, and the question of the hour is this. What are you going to do with Jesus of Nazareth, who claimed for himself deity, and issued a demand that everyone repent of their sin and believe in Him alone for their salvation. What are you going to do with Jesus? On April the 16th, 2007, there was a young man by the name of Sung Hoi Choi who killed 32 people, and he wounded more uh, others before he took his own life in a horrific rampage on the campus of Virginia Tech. Some of you may remember that. Shock mingled with deep grief as it shook the nation. But there was an an interesting thing that took place following that. As the campus officials began to plan a memorial service, they knew that it was going to be televised nationally. And so they determined that it would be an interfaith service. And as the cameras rolled, we heard a Buddhist quote the Dalai Lama and refer to the goodness of man. There was a Jewish woman who read from Ecclesiastes 3. There was a Muslim who quoted from the Koran and appealed to Allah. And there was a liberal Lutheran pastor who gave a a brief but empty pep talk about sticking together and helping each other out. But no one in that entire memorial service mentioned the name of Jesus Christ. What did they do with Jesus? They omitted him and omitted all of the references to him. And there's a reason for that. Because Christ claims about himself... And what is proclaimed about him in the Bible are so specific and so exclusive 
as he becomes offensive to a pluralistic and an all-roads-lead-to-heavens culture. Everything is tolerated in our public today but Jesus. On Thursday, March the 22nd, 2008, the Burlington Township High School of Burlington, New Jersey conducted a mock terrorism drill to train their student body, their teachers and administrators on what they should do should there be a terrorist that entered into their school. The school superintendent by the name of Chris Mono stated that the goal was to practice under conditions that are as real as possible. But listen to the story that they made up so that the drill could be real. They said in their story, pretend that there are two Christians who are seeking justice because the daughter of one of them was expelled for praying in class. That became the basis of their terrorism drill. Why in the world would school officials make Christians the villains if they were trying to be as real as possible? Because our culture increasingly sees the demands of Jesus on the world and they consider them to be crazy demands. What this principal did in this New Jersey school, what did he do with Jesus? He painted a caricature of him by which the students and the teachers depicted his followers as borderline lunatics just waiting for something to trigger them so that they would go crazy. We also are aware of just in the past couple of weeks the comments that were made on ABC's The View by Joy Bahar who referring to the vice president's Christianity and by now most of you know about it, she mocked Vice President Pence, calling him mentally ill for talking to Jesus and listening for God's voice. Her exact words were, it's one thing to talk to Jesus. It's another thing when Jesus talks to you. That's called mental illness, if I'm correct. Hearing voices. Franklin Graham responded to her remarks, posting to Facebook and saying the Bible is full of examples of people hearing the voice of God. And he quoted John chapter 10, verse 27, where Jesus said, My sheep hear my voice, and I know them, and they follow me. He continued by saying, I'm thankful that today he still speaks to us through his word and through his Holy Spirit at work within our lives. And then he said this question, Aren't you glad that God still speaks? You need to know that when we pray for the prayer of salvation as we're going to approach this morning, that you have got to determine in your heart that you are answering the question of what you will do with the claims of exclusivity of Jesus and salvation. And I want this message this morning to serve as a message of hope and a powerful spiritual breakthrough in your life. I want you to know that God provides a dynamic salvation that will impact every area of your life as you yield to him. And I want to begin by establishing, as I have every other week during this particular series, a list of verses for you to begin to jot down. And there is an outline for you available in your bulletin. And there's some room there for you to begin to jot down this list of verses that speaks and examples of answering the prayer of salvation. Before I read them, let me tell you something. The question is, what is salvation? It is the redemption from the state of spiritual lostness. 
It is deliverance from sin and its consequences through faith in Jesus Christ. The Bible refers to God's salvation to those who seek it hundreds of times in both the Old Testament and the New Testament. So here are some verses that you may want to jot down and spend some time this week looking at as it relates to answering the prayer of salvation. The first is found in Psalm 62, verses 1 and 2. My soul finds rest in God alone. My salvation comes from Him. He alone is my rock and my salvation. He's my fortress and I will never be shaken. Psalm 69, 13. I pray to you, O Lord, in the time of your favor, in your great love, O God, answer me with your sure salvation. Isaiah 51.8, the moth will eat them up like a garment, the worm will devour them as wool, but my righteousness will last forever, my salvation through all generations. Matthew 1.21, she will give birth to a son, and you are to give him the name Jesus, because he will save his people from their sins. Luke chapter 19, verse 10. The Son of Man came to seek and save what was lost. John chapter 3, verse 17. God did not send His Son into the world to condemn the world, but to save the world through Him. Oh, hallelujah! Aren't you glad today that we serve a God that didn't come to condemn us? He very easily could have, but He came to save us. Acts chapter 2, verse 21. Everyone who calls on the name of the Lord will be saved. Let me just state this to you. I've had conversations with individuals who have indicated to me that if I knew what they had done and if I knew the way that they had lived, I would know why they are excluded from salvation, that they have lived in such a way that God's grace would not be available to them. Let me tell you something. When God's word speaks, it's the truth. And so when he said, everyone who calls on the name of the Lord will be saved, that means you. Nothing that you've done that will exclude you from that because he wants to invite you into it. Acts 4.12, salvation is found in no one else, for there is not another name under heaven given to men by which we must be saved. Romans 1.16, I am not ashamed of the gospel because it is the power of God for salvation of everyone who believes, first to the Jew, then for the Gentile. Galatians chapter 3, verses 13 through 14, Christ redeemed us from the curse of the law by becoming a curse for us. It is written, Cursed is everyone who is hung on a tree. He redeemed us in order that the blessing given to Abraham might come to the Gentiles through Christ Jesus so that by faith we might receive the promise of the Spirit. And 1 Timothy chapter 1, verse 15. Here is a trustworthy saying that deserves full acceptance. Christ Jesus came into the world to save sinners, and then this line every one of us would be able to say with Paul, of whom I am the worst. It becomes very clear as you read the Scripture. It's universal throughout the Old and New Testament that God gives salvation to those who wholeheartedly decide that I will turn away from my sinful patterns and I will give my life away to a Savior who has purchased me. 
the sacrifices that paved the way for us to be able to enjoy the presence of the Lord this morning came at such a cost that Jesus Christ took the sin that we deserved and he bore it on the tree and instead gives us the righteousness that he had so that we could enjoy that relationship. 1 John 2, 2 said, He is the atoning sacrifice for our sins. You'll notice in that it didn't say, He is one of the atoning sacrifices. It said, He is the atoning sacrifice. And not only for ours, but also for the sins of the whole world. How then can we be saved? The Apostle Paul answers this question this way in Romans chapter 10, verse 9. If you confess with your mouth, Jesus is Lord, and you believe in your heart that God raised him from the dead, you will be saved. It is quite possible for you this morning to know that before you leave this room, that you can be right with God. And that every sin and every wrong you've ever committed could be thrust under the blood of his sacrifice and that you can leave here without the shame and the guilt that you came in here with because he is a redeeming God. And if you do not know him, there's a sheet of paper that is listed within your bulletin that throughout this series I have given you so that it can help you as you begin not only to launch yourself into prayer but perhaps to pray with others. And let me say this with you, this prayer of salvation. Lord, I thank you for loving me. In spite of my shortcomings, you chose to accept me as your child. I ask you to forgive my sins. Please take hold of my heart and allow me to begin a new life with you today. I believe that you rose from the dead, and in doing so, you conquered sin and death. I ask you to be my Savior and Lord. Give me the strength and the courage to follow you all the days of my life. In Jesus' name I pray, amen. How does salvation affect our lives? I believe that there are three ways that can be profoundly impacting the things that we do in everyday life. Number one, salvation will help you discover the right direction for your life. In our text this morning in John 14, 6, Jesus makes this declaration. He said, I am the way. I had a call from my father-in-law recently because we were going to be meeting at my son-in-law and daughter's house, and they had just recently moved. We didn't know how to get there, and uh, he had called me, and he said, Son, what, what are the directions? What roads do you take? And I said, Pop, I don't even know what to tell you. I said, I just punched their address into Google Maps. And I put my phone up there, and there's this woman that tells me how to get to their house. I said, I know how I leave Syracuse. I know those roads. But, I, you know, when he was saying, is it Highway 73? I said, I don't even know. I've, I've, com- I've completely don't even look at maps anymore because of this. I said, Pop, we bought your phone. You've got Google Maps on it. Oh, no, no, I could never. I could never do that. And I begin to, to recognize that in the culture in which we live, we put a great deal of faith into technology to tell us how to get there. In fact, it has completely removed the fear of being lost because as long as we have a cell connection, we always know there's this woman's voice that can tell us where we need to go. The irony of that is not lost on me. So when Jesus says, I am the way, in the Greek, the term here is emphatic. 
Jesus is literally saying is, there is no other way. I am always the way. I've always been the only way, and I am the truth and the life. He's saying there never was, nor will there ever be another way to have eternal life in heaven with God other than through my sacrifice on the cross. Now, as you know, as we listen to the news and as you read blogs and the newspapers these days, that statement is not easy for people to swallow. In fact, Christians who embrace this conviction that Jesus is the only way to heaven are often referred to as narrow-minded, bigoted, and even snobby and pious. There was a rabbi by the name of Rabbi Boteach who reflected on this attitude toward Christians who believed this when he said this, I am absolutely against any religion that says one faith is superior to another. I don't see how that is anything different than spiritual racism. It's a way of saying that we are closer to God than you, and that's what leads to hatred. The, the views of Rabbi Boteach are illustrative today of the world in which we live, a day of religious pluralism and tolerance where the exclusive claims of Jesus Christ are politically incorrect and is considered a verbal slap in the face to other belief systems. You see, we live in a culture where people are used to virtually endless options of about anything they want. We see the commercials for everything. There's endless options for cars and phones and all these different things. And so, by virtue of that, we begin to think that even spiritually, that we can approach heavenly things and think that there are many options by which that we can find our way to heaven on the spiritual buffet table of life. Many people believe these days that it's okay to think that you are right, but it's not okay to think that others are wrong. Let me repeat that. They believe today that it's okay for you to think that you are right, but it's not okay for you to think that others are wrong. I mean, most people don't mind your saying that Jesus is the Son of God, but they do get upset with you when you show them and speak to them and try to Woo them by the Spirit of God that Jesus is the only way. And I believe that the important point is that we live in a day and age where Christians are not the only ones declaring that their religion, their beliefs are the only way to God. Muslims, Mormons, Hindus, Jehovah's Witnesses, Christian scientists, Buddhists, Orthodox Jews, all of these faith systems also make this claim. But for some reason, Christians are the only ones who are criticized for doing so. You see, that's because all of the other religious systems, there is a built-in component of do-it-yourself. There is this aspect that if you'll just do the right things and you'll do them in the right ways, that somehow you can earn a salvation. Somehow it's given God an, an ability to look at us and say, you've tried so hard. Because of the work that you've done, you can make it. Christianity recognizes that we come to God with no good works. We come to God with nothing that we can say we have earned His grace. We come to Him only through the sacrifice of Jesus Christ. And people today want to be able to do something to say they've earned it. And so in a do-it-yourself society, we face a Jesus that says, you can't do it without me. We are incapable of reaching up to God. And in 1 John 4.10, it says, It's not our love for God, it is God's love for us, sending His Son to be the way to take away our sins. So Christ is the way. 
the one true guide who can keep you on the right path. And so when you feel disoriented, when you feel confused, and when you feel completely lost, he says, don't worry. When you're in relationship with me, I will stay with you and until we reach our destination. He is the way. Secondly, salvation will help you find answers. He states also that I am the truth. What's he saying in this phrase? He simply means that everything that he says is trustworthy. Everything that you read in the Bible is true. Every place that he leads you, he knows where he's going. Everything that he elevates in your heart, he knows what he's putting there. Every thought and action is absolutely genuine and trustworthy as he leads us. There was one man in the New Testament that tried to silence this truth, and his name was Saul. We know that he was a leader among religious authorities in Jerusalem in the first century. When Stephen, a devout follower of Jesus Christ, was being stoned to death, Saul was the one that said, I'll hold everybody's coats, and I'll make sure that your clothes stay clean as you're in the middle of this act of stoning somebody to death. And by standing there watching all of this, he was believing that they were doing what was right. He was known to go from house to house, dragging Christians out. He wanted to eradicate Christians everywhere. But one day everything changed. The high priest had sent him to go to Damascus and incarcerate all the Christians he could find on his journey. And he had almost reached Damascus when the scripture indicates to us that in the middle of the noonday, when the sun is the highest and it's at its brightest, there was a bright light, the scripture says, that was so bright it knocked him off his horse. Now I find that interesting That the thing that we consider to be so bright we have to squint when we look at it was not anything in comparison to the glory of the presence of the Lord. That was so bright it made the sun dim by comparison. The power of his presence literally knocked this man off the horse and as he's laying in the dirt, a voice from that presence begins to speak to him and say, Saul, Saul, why do you persecute me? Interesting enough, this unbeliever instantly began to discern in his heart, Lord, is this you? Who are you, Lord? And Jesus responded, I am Jesus who you are persecuting. I find it fascinating that in one sentence, it turned Saul's life upside down. The man who dedicated his life to the destruction of Christianity suddenly found himself face to face with the sovereign Lord. And without a doubt, I have to imagine as he's laying there, he thought this thought. Oh no, everything I thought was a lie is true. Everything I thought was a lie is true. When we have people reject Jesus, when they persecute you, when they tell you that you are foolish for your beliefs, when they tell you that you're believing in fairy tales, I want you to know, That there is a day coming when the presence of God Almighty will shine in his brightness and every knee will bow before him. And in that moment, like Saul, they will likewise say, Oh no, everything that I thought was a lie is true. You know, one of the problems that come with living in a fallen world that's polluted by sin is that there's so much falsehood and so much deceit and it's very difficult to know what is real, what is true, what we can build our life on. And Jesus came and said, build your life on me and on my teachings and trust what I say, for I alone am the truth. So why is it that so many people resist this fact? 
Why do they have such a hard time embracing Christ as the only way and the only truth? And I think the reason is, is that we live in a very selfish world. We are so selfish that we know that if we choose to accept the claims of Jesus, it requires us to understand that we then must be obedient to his commands. There are a lot of people that would receive Jesus if they could just have the salvation part and still have the free will to do whatever they wanted. In fact, there are a lot of people that have accepted that kind of salvation. I said the prayer, I'm good, I can live any way I want. I want you to understand that is not a scriptural way of approaching the Lord. He is to be your Savior, at which point you commit to let Him rule your life and live in you and through you. And there's a lot of people that are just not willing to do that. It threatens their autonomy. They want to live their lives, not according to the will of God, but according to their own will. And this is a tragic, tragic mistake. Because when we give our life to God, He wants to direct it. Thirdly, salvation will help you experience life. There's a lot of people that believe deep down in their heart about the character of God that if I truly live for Him, He's going to make my life boring. If I truly submit myself to the Lord, He's going to take all the fun things out of my life. I want to, first of all, challenge your idea of the character of God then. Because this is the same God that says, I have come to bring life and life more abundantly. In other words, whatever you think is fun and enjoyable and joy-filled, I've got more for you than you can dream. In fact, if this is what you believe of the character of God, then you're not going to like heaven at all. Because heaven is going to be filled with joy. It's going to be filled with happiness. It's going to be filled with gladness. It's going to be filled with all these things. But if you have an idea of the character of God is to rob from you and make you so sad and so boring, then you're not going to enjoy the relationship with God at all. It says, the thief comes only to steal and to kill and destroy, but I am come that they may have life and have it to the full. Matthew 11, verses 28 through 30 in the Message Bible. I want to read it to you in the Message Bible because I love the way that it puts it. Are you tired? Are you worn out? You burned out on religion? Come to me. Get away with me, and you'll recover your life. I'll show you how to take a real rest. Any of you need a real rest? Four of you. Walk with me. Work with me. Watch how I do it. Learn the unforced rhythms of grace. I won't lay anything heavy or ill-fitting on you. Keep company with me, and you will learn how to live life freely and lightly. In other words, he's saying, once you allow me to take over your life, what I will bring to you will be a better life than anything you could have planned for yourself. I love it when he says, learn to walk in the rhythm of his grace. There's, there's a gracefulness that he, he places upon us, and I believe that that grace then flows through us and touches everybody that's around us. As we walk in that grace, he said, I'm here to help you experience life. So if you feel lifeless and dead, your salvation will not come in a rigid set of rules or regulations that will overwhelm you with impossible standards. Only salvation in Christ will help you discover true life. So regardless of whatever errors you may have committed, 
how bleak the future may seem, the Lord will revolutionize your life in ways that you never dreamed. And the following prayer will help you begin a new life in Christ today. And I'm fully confident that He will hear and answer this prayer because He is the way, the truth, and the life. So prayer for starting a new life today sounds like this. Lord, I have little energy and little hope. My prognosis for the future doesn't look very promising. I recognize that I need a change. So I come to you now and unconditionally yield my life. Fill me with your presence. Give me your strength. I want to be born again. Forgive all my sins and mistakes. And I ask that your Holy Spirit would empower me to live a meaningful and significant life that glorifies you. I ask these things in Jesus' name. Amen. In just a moment, our worship team is going to lead us in a song. and I'm going to ask that our ushers would begin to distribute the elements of communion. And when you get them, I'm going to ask that you would hold them and wait until everybody has been served so that we can participate together. As I look out this morning, I see so many new faces. And, and if you're here today as a guest, I want you to understand that if you believe in Jesus Christ, if you've asked him into your heart, you don't have to be a member of this church to participate in the communion supper because you're a member of a much larger family than just this body. And so I want to invite you, if you know Jesus today, that you can feel welcome at the communion table. One of the greatest qualities of God that I absolutely love and take advantage of all the time is that He's a God that gives everyone a second chance and a third chance and a fourth chance. There's this really interesting passage of Scripture as Peter and Jesus are sitting there and Peter has this overwhelming sense of spiritual self-confidence. Jesus is beginning to describe what's going to happen and says, you're going to deny me. And Peter stands up and looks him in the eye and says, Lord, this may happen to all these other people in this church, but it's not going to happen to me. You don't know me. I've got a self-will for you that's incredible. And we all know the story that after he gets arrested, suddenly that self-will begin to just kind of peter out. He got so intimidated that it was little maidens that asked him the question that caused him to deny the Lord. And we know that by the third time, the rooster crowed, and instantly he recognized he was not as spiritually strong as he thought he was. At the end of the story of the crucifixion and resurrection of Jesus, there's this other passage that we find in John chapter 21. And so Jesus is appearing again, and must have been a pretty good cook because he's on the shore and he's got a fire and he's making fish and they can smell at the boat and Peter recognizes it's Jesus so he jumps out of the boat I, I just I bet Peter was a fun kid to raise he gets in he's standing in front of Jesus and he's all wet and the rest of the guys bring in all the fish and there's they're standing there at the end of the meal Jesus begins just to have this conversation with him and he he says, Simon, son of John, do you truly love me more than these? And Peter's given an opportunity to make things right, a second chance. And he says, yes, Lord, you know I love you. And so Jesus said, feed my lambs. And I don't know whether it was immediately after this or the conversation of God, but Jesus asks him again. He said, Peter, Simon, son of John, do you truly love me? Peter responded, he says, Lord, you know that I love you. 
And then further on in the verse, in the chapter, Jesus asked him a third time. And the scripture uses some really interesting wording because at the third time it says, Peter was hurt because Jesus asked him a third time. I often wonder how Jesus was hurt when Peter denied him. If there wasn't some sense of correlation there. Peter, I just, I want you to know that pain because you're going to need to overcome that as you move forward because I'm giving you a second chance. Any of you need a second chance this morning? Third chance? Maybe you're in the triple or four-digit chances. God gives everyone another chance. And so as we prepare for communion, let me read this prayer. And I'm going to ask that you would just close your eyes and bow your heads and that you would say it in your heart as I read it because it's the prayer of a second chance. Lord, I know I've made too many mistakes and I'm not perfect. Forgive me for not making our relationship the highest priority. I've let distractions and temptations pull me away. I want to be at peace with you and I want you to be proud of me. Will you grant me a fresh start and another chance? I ask you to forgive me. And I ask you to accept me as one of your precious children. I rededicate my life to you. And I ask you to give me your spirit to overcome everything that holds me back. In Jesus' name I pray. And if you agree, you say, Amen. The night in which he was betrayed, he broke the fresh bread and began to distribute it around to all of the men around that table. And in a very important way, he says, you don't understand everything that's happening here just now, but this, this bread that you're tearing represents the breaking of my body for you that you're going to come to understand very, very clearly in a few days. We who are on this side of Calvary recognize what the broken body of the Lord means to us as a benefit. We have received physical healing as a result of the stripes that he suffered. We have received cleansing as a result of the things that he went through. And so today when we hold this wafer that symbolizes the body of the Lord Jesus Christ, we recognize that there is a level of victory that is given to us as we remember this, what he has done for us. So Lord, I ask that you would bless this symbol of your body as we remember what you went through to provide salvation for us. In Jesus' name, amen. Let us partake together. At the end of that meal, Jesus began to pour out the wine to them. And in another very important conversation, says, I want you to understand that this symbolizes my blood, which is shed for you. Again, today we recognize that there are lists of things that we keep in our mind that we know that we have done wrong. And that list stays alive because we have an enemy that whispers those things into our ear on a constant basis, all the while trying to tell you why your salvation is inadequate and why you do not deserve the grace of God. Jesus, in this moment, said, I want you to understand the power of my shed blood for you because I took the weight of everything that you have ever done, that's ever been done, or that ever will be done, and it was so ugly that the Father had to turn his head. But when my blood was shed, for those that receive me, their sin is gone. It's gone. 
Some of you need to be reminded today that the list that God has and the list that Satan has don't look the same. Because when God looks at your name, he sees the righteousness of Jesus Christ which has been imparted to you. And he's the righteous judge and he's the one that has the final say. So today we stand in victory holding up the symbol of the blood of Jesus which is our salvation. Father, we ask your blessing upon this symbol of your blood. We remember today how you won for us our salvation and we willingly submit that you are the one way, you are the truth, and you are the life and we receive you by what you have done for us. In Jesus' name, amen. Let's partake together. Hallelujah. Hallelujah. I'm going to ask our pastoral staff and our deacons if they would come and just prepare themselves. I'm going to close in prayer this morning, but if you have a need this morning in your life that you would like somebody to pray with you about, I want to invite you to come. We believe that God is a divine healer. He heals relationships, bodies. We believe that God is the divine direction giver and can help lead you in whatever questions you may have. Father, today we recognize you as the way, the truth, and the life. In the middle of a society that wants to argue that, I pray that you would give us the will to live knowing full well that you alone are the Savior of the world. May we love people to the point where they understand that you are a God of love. May we respect your word and live honorably and honestly before you. Let us go with the joy of the Lord where everywhere we go that our smile and the joy that we have will demonstrate the reality of your love in our life. In Jesus' name we pray and everyone said amen. You have a great day in the Lord and a great week in the Lord. God bless you.